Hello and welcome to this week's Novara FM, brought to you by Novara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm James Butler and I'm delighted to welcome back to the studio this week my Novara Media co-founder and erstwhile host of this show, Aaron Bastani. Hello, James. You may have noticed Aaron's absence from the airways over the course of the last couple of months. That's because he's been busy setting down his thoughts on technology and politics and the bright... Promethean future that is fully automated luxury communism. Um, so we thought we might use this show to talk a bit about maybe just one strand uh, of what you're working on at the moment. Some of the questions raised by technology and politics and what it means for both capitalism and the alternatives to capitalism. There is, I think, a technological turn in the left, not just the left. Uh, there is a technological question which occupies or preoccupies political thinkers at the moment. Rise of the robots, artificial intelligence, dystopia or utopia. <clears throat> and one day we'll be able to edit my uh, uh, cough-inclined... Strep throat. Uh, yeah, there is actually, I think that there is talk of that. <laughs> yeah, well, cure the common cold and then I'll start believing in <laughs> the powers of technology. But this, you know, th this is a turn, this technological turn. It's happened before it happened in the 60s, happened in the 80s. Periodically, uh, political thinkers get exercised and occupied with the question uh, of technology and politics. It's probably clear to people who've listened to the show before that in the past we've had differing perspective, we've had, we've had differing... Uh, viewpoints on some of this stuff, um, partly because of my own deep distrust of technological solutions to political problems. Uh, you want to focus particularly today, I think, on the, the implications of exponential technologies, a theme which does sort of draw quite a lot of this into it. Questions of robots, artificial intelligence, etc. hover all over it. But perhaps you can start by just laying the groundwork and telling us what on earth exponential technologies are. Oh. Well, yeah, to, to, to start, I'd actually draw upon what you just said about the 60s and the 80s as moments in which technology seemed to be at a precipice. And in reality, in the 1960s, it was. And actually, when we talk about exponential technologies, we have to look back to the 1950s and the 1960s, a very exciting time. The first transistor, first Mon transistor uh, was invented in 1953, first silicon transistor in 1954, first solar cells, I think, are the mid-50s. Uh, DNA is sequenced in 53. We, of course, have the jet engine in uh, the end of the Second World War. The first the first human uh, instrument in space is a V2 rocket 1944. Obviously, that's developed then with the Sputnik program by the Soviets. That's 57. We have the space race. So clearly, the 60s were an exciting time for technology. And when we talk about um, space exploration, which is now very much a, a private industry alongside it, uh, the... <clears throat> The, um, the plaything of nation states, uh, when we talk about robotics, when we talk about anything which involves uh, digitization, processing information as zeros and ones, then the 1960s were fundamentally important. And then to go back to the idea of exponential technologies, uh, if you look at growth, we often think about uh, growth in a linear sense as human beings. One, two, three, four, five, six. But in, um, in nature, there are a few examples of what is called exponential growth. Typically, we associate it most with bacteria, for instance, or virus, uh, with cellular division. So you go 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. And 
Gordon Moore, again in the 1960s, in the 1960s, 1965, he wrote an article about this tendency in uh, computing. And the miniaturization, effectively, of how many transistors you could fit on a computer chip. And this has come to be called Moore's Law. And he noticed that actually there was a doubling, effectively, every 12 months. Uh, and he predicted then, this is 1965, if this continues in the coming decades, we can expect personal computing, self-driving cars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he understood some of the uh, the implications of that. And... What's fascinating is Moore's law didn't continue for 10 years, as was initially his prediction. It's continued until the present day. Uh, we're speaking now uh, 52 years later, albeit it has slowed down. So it went from a year to 18 months, and now it's just over two years, it seems. Well, it's still prevailing. The question is for how much longer? That's the big political question in regard to Moore's law. And then because an increasing number of technologies are affected by digitization, cameras. I think we get the first digital cameras, commercially available digital cameras in the 80s. I think Kodak do one. You know, it's a ridiculous monstrosity. And this, because we're dealing with information that is being relayed through integrated circuits as zeros and ones, which is what happens to photos once they're in megapixels, that's then subject to the same trends, which is why I think the third generation iPad had a camera which was five times more powerful than the iPad 2. Uh, and that has camera technology has implications in regard to, for instance, automation, self-driving cars or robotics. Uh, when you see a SpaceX rocket land, it's doing so autonomously. And that's contingent on uh, camera technology. We see it also, for instance, in LEDs. Uh, we see it in gene sequencing. Have we, so, have we did, seen a SpaceX rocket land yet? Yeah, they, they self-land. They self-land. But the, people don't realise this. They, they, don't, they haven't got a human pilot. They're landing mm -hmm. autonomously. Uh, so a lot of the technologies in regard to, <laughs> we won't be talking about it today probably, but asteroid mining is one, <laughs> uh, are already being developed. The only problem with asteroid mining is that the smaller ones aren't spherical. Therefore, they don't have equally balanced gravity, which would make landing, you'd imagine, next to impossible. But then they won't be the ones we're interested in. So, Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that strikes me, you talk about in the 60s as a period of innovation, technological innovation, or this kind of... You know, uh, bursting forth of these technologies. I mean, there is a reason for it, right? Which is that it's the aftermath of a, a great and catastrophic world war. So a lot of these technologies, military technologies, are then put into civil use. And now that's, I mean, you know, you can't, uh, that's not a basis for thinking they're bad things. Um, <clears throat> but I think it is, I think it's quite interesting that they have their origin there. Um, I mean, it, it, we'll come back to Moore's Law because I think Moore's Law is interesting, um, but it, I was thinking, I was trying to think last night why it is so often that, so you talk about the iPad camera being more powerful. I, you know, I, I'm trying to think about why is this stuff leaves me fundamentally cold. Mm. Um, and I, I, I mean, I suppose I just find technology in and of itself quite difficult to get excited about. And in part that's, that's because I guess it's, it's just because of kind of historical awareness that the emancipatory potential of technology is is rarely realised and certainly not immediately realised, and that relations of domination, historical relations of domination, um, tend to persist, and in fact are often even renewed by uh, new forms of technology. Mm -hmm. So historically, I mean, my <clears throat> sympathies lie with the kind of invisible army of Ned Ludd rather than the inventors of the spinning jenny. So why should I care mm. about technology? Well, we have to care about technology, um, you said, for instance, cameras. I mean, this is a great example. 
who cares if the iPad camera is, you know, five times more powerful than its predecessor? The point is that this will feed into autonomous vehicles. My father's a taxi driver. Improvements in that technology will very likely mean that that profession is a thing of the past in 20 years' time. So it allows us not to prophecy the future, because that's the job of, you know, capitalist futurism, uh, something like a Ray Kurzweil, but it should inform how we act in the present and seek to rechannel those directions, like you say, in socially advantageous ways to the working class. Um, another really ridiculous example, you know, and it, it, you're right, it, this makes it sound so impotent, is, uh, and I love this example, people always say, there's more computational power in an iMac than in the Apollo program. I mean, this isn't even vaguely correct. You know, the changes are far bigger than that. In 1996, the world's most powerful computer was called ASCI Red. It was the size of a tennis court. This is 1996, not 1969. Um, it cost $55 million to build, and it was primarily about predicting and modelling um, uh, nuclear explosions. And it was used by the US government until 2005. And then in 2006, the same processing power was available in a PlayStation 3. Okay? PlayStation 3, 2006. That's, uh, you know, it's not that you know, long after. Then the PlayStation 4, released in 2013, is twice as powerful as the PlayStation 3 and therefore the ASCI Red. And at $400, cost one one hundred thousandth of what had been very until very recently the world's you know leading supercomputer mm. but again we're talking about a games console so yeah. i mean who cares fundamentally <laughs> but then the thing is where we get these massive drops in cost that's come from commercially diffuse gaming technology consumer technology business technology and then once the prices are that low they're applied elsewhere so with cameras with computing we're now seeing it being applied to first and foremost and i think we'll talk about this later on logistics and mm. autonomous vehicles because this does seem to me to be the leading edge of something much bigger now the other stuff's more complex it might not come for a few decades yet but warehousing taxis lorries trains it strikes me that these won't just be automated in the next decade or two but when they are it'll actually be better for us because they'll be safer you know 60 yeah. million people died in the 20th century because of car accidents yeah yeah i mean uh I, yeah i mean i mean i find the the form of the car itself um something that i, I believe should be destroyed you know i i, I the, the the notion of encapsulating individual worker mm. in its kind of individual transport space rather than you know investing in in both sustainable and shared forms of of, of communal transport it seems to me you know, rather foolish um anyway it's, that's an aside but that's i mean it's the same you know it's the same it's the same technology we're talking about self-driving yeah, 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 trains or trams absolutely, absolutely. or you know um, yeah no i don't disagree with that i mean i suppose the problem for me is always that that is the feeling that we've been here before and i mean you talk about kind of the advancement in in sort of camera technology for instance mm. but the the flip side of it other than self-driving cars is uh facial recognition technology yeah. and surveillance and so there there always seem to me to be you know on the one hand the possibility of abundance you know because i always think of that that, <coughs> that speech that charlie chaplin speech in in the great dictator you know, the anti-Hitler film from, yeah. from the 30s. It's one of the very the first, I think it's the first of his spoken you know, sound films. Uh, he says, we've developed speed, but we've shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives us abundance has left us in want. Mm. So the recognition of potential for a kind of machine-driven abundance in particular is quite old. 
And certainly these kind of labour-saving possibilities are, pre- you know, they're, they're, they're certainly visible to someone like J.M. Keynes, um, who, <laughs> who sees this, you know, this is a, a future potential. So Ch- Charlie Chaplin is hardly an outlier here. Um, so that, that question, the historical predominance of, of kind of oppressive use of technology seems to me to be quite striking. One reason to be kind of hesitant about uh, embracing uh, technological growth for its own sake. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, as a species, I think we're... We're pretty old. Homo sapiens at half a million years old. I could be wrong. And our predecessors, Homo erectus, they use tools. So primates have been using tools and technology for a long time. Yeah. Fire, stone tools. And then you get the agricultural revolution around 10,000 BC. And in a sense, we left scarcity then. You know, in a sense, the Neolithic revolution is post-scarcity because you get surplus. All of a sudden, we're no longer subject to the caprices of, well, we are, but not solely, uh, natural disasters, large predators. Actually, the primary source of danger for the average human being is other human beings, Mm. okay? Which itself sort of betokens a a form of post-scarcity. So agriculture, you know, hereditary breeding, selective breeding, uh, these create forms of post-scarcity. That then happens again with various technological revolutions, most recently with the Industrial Revolution. We see again a kind of post-scarcity. We no longer need to use uh, organic labour, i.e., and I don't mean that in the Marxist sense, uh, (laughs) you know, oxen and horses or slave labour in the 21st century because much of this repetitive propulsion or motive power comes from machines. But still people have the most deadening, you know, horrific, alienating jobs. So the difference I would say between this revolution or this, let's say disruption, because it's not a revolution, (laughs) this disruption in regards to uh, computational power and a range of other things is that we're now going to see post-scarcity in cognitive labour. Now, it doesn't mean that your your and I jobs are going to be, you know, this stuff is going to be automated. It means that very repetitive white collar work will go the way of many of the manufacturing jobs of the last... accountancies, basic law, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that then brings into question, which is a, this is a pressing question politically for anybody, regardless of your views on technology. If, uh, I mean, I think global manufacturing jobs are about 140 million. You know, China has increased its output by 70% since 2000. I've got the data, I can't remember. But it's, you know, the number of industrial jobs has contracted. Nobody's disputing this. That will carry on. In the meantime, the same trend will go to white collar work, uh, you know, service sector work, uh, which whether you're a social democrat or a neoliberal or a communist, we have to have something which responds to that. Yeah, I mean the, the the flip side of this, I suppose, is is the question. So, like, is is the extent to which the technological drive just intensifies exploitation in the here and now? So, uh, the relatively low prices of consumer electronics, um, sort of infrastructural electronics or energy electronics like photovoltaic cells. So these are solar panels, stuff like that. Yeah, they're, they're driven not not just <coughs> by technological revolution, but a pool of relatively cheap labour. Now, if you have an expanding you know, surplus labour supply, then isn't that always going to be the case? So isn't that, you know, it's the the option to, to kind of automate production here is always going to be less attractive than partial automa- automation and then uh, cheap labour uh, to, su- to supply. I can go into this a bit, but... Yeah, yeah so just, just to be brief, because it's a mistake that's... Ob- uh, it's frequent in the literature. Uh, solar cells aren't exponential technology. They uh, are subject to something called the experience curve, which means that when you double the production of a good, tends to see a price drop of about 15%. Uh, 
15 to 20%. And that's because of a range of things, uh, economies of scale, um, organizational fixes. You know, for instance, when the steam engine was initially put into the factories of the early, uh, of the early 19th century, they were putting the steam engine in the middle of the factory floor, you know, and with electricity, which is fundamentally, it's the same, you know, it's still part of the industrial revolution. It's only coming, you know, 80 years later with electricity. It meant that each machine, could have its own source of energy rather than a centralised one at the, at the centre of the factory floor. Um, so solar is a revolution. Again, I don't like to use that word, but it, it probably is in energy. It's hugely disruptive, uh, but it's not exponential. In regards to the labour the labor element, you're absolutely right. But we've seen uh, the experience curve kick in with solar technology since it was first deployed on the world's fourth ever satellite. I think it's called the Vanguard satellite, which was deployed by NASA in the late 50s, early 60s. And if you look at what's happening in uh, uh, dollars per watt since then, I mean, it's just sensational. And right now, the price with PV sales is crashing. And look, yes, a variable in that may be very cheap labour. Although, to be fair, much of it's made in China and Chinese wages are going up. Uh, so you would have yeah, expected still cheaper than I think. I think industrial labour in China is about half the price of it is the UK, yeah. which isn't very good, by the way. If you're trying to make lots no, of money, no, no, I know, but there are other. Yeah, uh, yeah, but I it wouldn't explain the fact that it's kind of sped up in the last several years and, and fundamentally also the, the human element of making solar cells isn't that big you know this is made mm-hmm. out of silicon silicon's actually a pretty you know ubiquitous thing on planet earth you know we have resource problems in regards to other parts of the renewable sort of supply chain lithium batteries for instance but solar cells for instance are i mean they should become increasingly cheap the question is will they become cheaper than hydrocarbons yes relatively soon you know th- that that's the shift that we need to think about in terms of the hydrocarbon economy being finished mm-hmm. is the second that solar is cheaper for 70% of the world. Yeah. It'll probably never be cheaper in Britain, um, or it may be, but not for a very long time. Uh, then that's the point in which, you know, Shell, BP have to either adapt, have to apply intellectual property, capital, capitalism mm-hmm. as it exists, has to respond, or the insurgents become the incumbents. Uh, and we have to look at all of that within a broader uh, context for political transformation if we want to change the world. Yeah. Okay. So let, let me come back to the, the to Moore's Law. So this is... Uh, and, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it reminds me... Uh, so... This industry doesn't exist before the mid-20th century, the uh, IT industry. Mm. <clears throat> and so, you know, and, and, and computer networks themselves, it takes until the 60s till they exist. Um, so th- this industry grows out of nothing in the course of half a century, which I think obviously should, should be a cause for, for our attention. Now, the value of the industry in terms of the world economy, and these are OECD figures, um, it's about 6% of the world economy. Um, and I'll come back to that. Uh, it, it was worth about eight billion in nineteen ninety and two point eight trillion in twenty ten. Wow. So it's a huge growth. And that may even understate the importance of this kind of technology because it doesn't include uh you know its role in kind of cars, so the computer chip in your car and th- things like that. Um and it's so it's hard to assess assess sectorally because it just it, it expands across um you know all lines of production. So it becomes a general purpose platform Technology and one of the things I think that's visible in what you know digital uh, technologies have done, not only to production but the whole cycle um, of uh, capitalist economies, is that it's kind of brought 
these things into increasing contact and increasing simultaneity. So the moment of your the moment of production. Uh, the moment of circulation, the moment of financialization, increasingly sort of collapse into each other. So, you know, production itself becomes a process of circulation, i.e. the commodity moves through various sort of labor or automated process. And that would be also as part of a kind of supply chain linkage of, of dispersed facilities. Um, the circulation also entails production. Um, so advertising, logistics, uh, you know, the, this kind of thing. So both of these kind of automate uh, or, or seek modes of automation. Um, and then, you know, the algorithmic uh, uh, aspect of this becomes uh, tied to its financialization. Um, so one of the things I think that's interesting is the rise of these kind of, of smartphones and things like this, which bring this all into a single uh, or kind of mobile computing generally. So, you, you know, you can work on that device, you can buy things on that device, you can engage in basic financial transactions on that device. Um, you know, so it brings together all of all of these moments to kind of say so the, the, the circuit of capital is, is increasingly integrated and accelerating. And, uh, and to me, also, this feels dystopian. But you can also, uh, by the way, I'm not going to, I agree with you. I actually think, you know, we wouldn't have cell phones in the, com- in the communism. We, you know, again, we need to talk about <laughs> how we would redirect these technologies. Uh, but you can also engage, this is a pretty radical idea, right? You can also, uh, it's a very facile example as well. So apologies. You would be able to edit a Wikipedia article. So you can, you could uh, participate in non-market forms of production, uh, literally in a different tab, like you say, to engaging in circulation, i.e. purchasing something on Amazon, or doing a financial transaction, or perhaps writing an article or uh, making some notes uh, for work, which is a form of, you know, valorized labor. Uh, so yeah, they're pretty remarkable things from mm-hmm. that from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, so it's you know the, the other aspect of this, of course, is the the um, you know these cyclopean machines or cyclopean machines, as Marx calls them. These you know, he's looking at the massive steamships and railroads and machines as machines built by machines, um, and uh, you know, <clears throat> thinking about Moore's law, you come to think about the kind of material basis of this stuff. So. Um, you know, there, there, there are a couple of other, you know, a couple of things related to it that, that make me kind of skeptical. And the first thing is that it's an economic law, right? So, and there are, you know, there's a question of, and I mean, you mentioned it, but of how long the law will be, yeah. uh, sustainable or applicable. It's, it's sort of contingent. I mean, the thing that's not often mentioned next to it is also the, the, or the, the corollary of the other law, Metcalfe's law. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Yeah. I mean, so this is a guy who invented, just John Metcalfe, he invented the sort of Ethernet. So, you know, he declared the value of a network increases as the square of its Mm. nodes. So this is, you know, probably to encourage investment in wired and, you know, wireless communications. You know, I was thinking, you know, what kind of value, you know, is added here? And, you know, of course, it's generally taken to be kind of financial, commercial. um, And this, this result, this is, I think, the thing that gives rise to these enormous uh, platforms. So Amazon, uh, Facebook, things like this. Um, you know, so so communication becomes commodified, uh, and you know it also involves increasing kind of extraction of free labor from 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 those users. And I, I think it's important these laws come from industry heads. So I think you know there's a, an important task to kind of try and think against their grain. Um, because it can become too easily laudatory uh, of the way in which technology is developed, but I don't think I don't think it's necessarily a given. Um, I I want to think a bit uh, 
about the way in which uh, semiconductors are made. Mm. So these are, or, or, or indeed, I think, you know, the 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 way. In, so so to me, it seems that the, the question here is is, or the broader question about all of this is about who and what uh, rules in the machine age, in the new machine age. Um, and at the moment, the answer is capital. <clears throat> and I guess there are, there, are, there are a couple of ways into this, um, but, but semiconductors are one, and I want to talk maybe a bit about uh, car manufacture as well, which might mm. be immediately more sensible. But it's worth saying that, it, and in all discussions about this, that uh, it's not about ones and zeros, actually. There's a material basis uh, to you know, so-called immaterial labour, um, right. Well, this is the this is the bit that's not deflationary, right? Yeah. 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 At the moment. Yeah. So semiconductor production requires a clean room, mm. um, so nothing can contaminate the kind of the, the the chips as they're made. So that requires highly advanced production technologies. And in the initial silicon boom, these were based in Silicon Valley. So a lot of our data and, and our thinking about that gives us more carefully observed. Uh, zone than some other production zones. But there are also peripheral jobs, right? The pr- preparation of printed circuit boards, printers, cables, um, which can be produced in, in settings which have far less um, uh, kind of clinical uh, uh, an air. Uh, and, and indeed, actually, um, in the initial Silicon Valley boom, these were often produced in, in kind of peripheral workers' own homes. Mm. Um, so, and obviously around this is all the kind of service workers. Re- this is this is the real rather than formal subsumption of labour. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, the, so uh, you know, and the, the 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 in the Silicon Valley boom, the, the wage differentials I think were really striking yeah. as well. You know, all these millionaires being created, and I think it's like two hundred and twenty times difference in salaries between top and peripheral yeah. workers. Some people not even. That's the thing in the early days. I mean, like a lot of it again was coming out of the non-market economy. You know, yeah. a lot of people weren't even interested in this being uh, a commodity for exchange. But so tracing the of these, I think, are, are really are, is really interesting because you know you see the introduction of kind of massive kind of flexible working conditions in these kind of peripheral jobs. Um, you know, the, the you know, and they the subcontracting. So you know, have second or th- third tier subcontracting to these workers at home who are using all these kind of hugely toxic solvents. Yep. Um, you know, sitting like five foot from where they're preparing dinner for their children. Um, so you know, and these are chemicals that actually are are are, are again, pro, you know, products of the military, com- you know, military mm. industrial complex you know, rise out of the Second World War, um, and you know, so this kind of geometry of production that you're talking about, the Moore's law stuff, mm. it requires mm-hmm. ever more kind of complex solvents mm. to wash away all these tiny particles and stuff like that. Mm. Now, in Silicon Valley, these often contaminated water. They often, you know, and the the you know even even the peripheral jobs require you know, highly, co- highly complex and highly toxic. Uh, and, they, you know, so there's a, there was a big case in 1981 um, that found the water table being contaminated by trichloroethane, which is a hugely uh, harmful chemical. Um, you know, the, the workers uh, in, both in and out of the factory have you know, headaches, rashes, dizziness, respiratory problems. Um, and actually, given the large female, uh, you know, uh, workforce, 
uh, which you know is perhaps surprising, but but also perhaps not surprising. Um, you know, massive risk of miscarriage and birth defects. Mm. So the real material consequences of this kind of production, and it hasn't stopped mm. either, because the next stage of this is outsourcing. Mm. Um, and you know, once it gets too difficult to produce this stuff in the US, because the US, although having quite lax regulation compared to somewhere like Europe, mm. um, you know, really uh, did crack down on some of this stuff, and so it, it ends up in Juarez, uh, in Mexico, in in, in India, in Taiwan, uh, different things in in each yeah. as well. Um, so so this is so so what I, I mean to say here is is that isn't some of the promise of this stuff founded on some quite sinister and quite grim uh, production processes. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's, it's important to say this isn't specific to digital technologies, right? Yeah. A lot of this, yeah. you know, it's in textile manufacture, it's in, yeah. you know, uh, chemical engineering, chemical manufacture. Um, so I, I don't want to stigmatise one industry under capitalism, but absolutely. Um, if you look at, for instance, coltan mining, if you look at... Oh, there was one particular uh, element that was mined in, uh, in, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. I can't remember what it was called. Coltan's a great example. You know, the labour standards around this stuff are just, well, they're inexistent yeah. fundamentally. And uh, the big players here, Samsung, Apple, don't really need to, don't really need to pay too much attention to their supply chains. So the things that are going into this, and by the way, that doesn't apply to all of this, right? Um, uh, cobalt, nickel, you know, these are relatively common elements um silicon you know it's not like the earth is running out of these things right uh, i mean it will do at some point but at the moment think you know in terms of our resource shortages they're not an issue and they're the sort of they're the the water carriers of this industry as a material but then there are there are some where that isn't the case uh, and that will require as i lay out in the book one of the more uh, out there proposals is of asteroid mining uh, at least for the the resource extraction. Um, and it, it, people might say, well, what the hell are you talking about? This is actually a surprisingly easy thing to do, in so much as the hardest part of space exploration is leaving the Earth, which is the bit we've already done. Uh, the problem is... Massive environmental cost. To, to oh, absolutely. No, no, of course, absolutely. But the hardest thing is is leaving the Earth, right? Which we, you know, we've, we've done since the early... Well, actually, we did it in 1944. Germans did it. Um... And after that, it becomes, sorry for the word, exponentially easier <laughs> once you leave the, the, the gravitational pull of, of the Earth. And the big problem in regard to uh, a private space industry, resource extraction industry, you know, beyond uh, off-world industry effectively, is converting ice, water, H2O, into a form of fuel, which we know you, we, we can do it here on Earth with hydrogen and oxygen. So the elements are there to basically make fuels off Earth, on the moon, on Mars, wherever. But again, it's about being able to do it. So asteroid mining is there, if you look at the automation. It's increasingly there in regard to rocket technology. Again, the price of rocket technology is just collapsing. There's a company now in New Zealand. It's being contracted. It has a, it, uh, it has a deal with uh, NASA. It uses their facilities in, in Texas, I believe in addition to their own one in New Zealand, they now can send microsatellites into orbit, they're saying, for as little as $6.5 million. SpaceX does something very similar for around $15, $20 million. Now, you know, the Apollo missions were multi-billion dollar missions. I think the space shuttle program, again, you know, multi-billion dollar. I mean, the Apollo mm -hmm. program itself, I think, costs $150 billion. So the mineral problem 
I would say it's part building circular commodities. Every and this is a political thing. Every part of a commodity has to be recyclable. Again, you know, we could do that today. We don't because of capitalism built in obsolescence. Uh, recycling, and then eventually, yes, we will need to find materials which probably won't be very, you know, there won't be much of it on Earth. And the great thing about asteroids is, unlike planets, with planets, all this stuff is in the core. On an asteroid, it's all on the outside. That's the difference yeah, between a planet yeah. and an asteroid. Although yeah. asteroids uh, above a certain size are spherical, they're technically planetoids. So there are solutions there. And I think the analogue for me is aluminium. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll like this. I think Pliny the Elder <laughs> talks about, um, 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 you know... Uh, an bauxite. Uh, the, yeah, uh, and he takes it to a particular emperor, I can't remember. And he'd say, ultra light, very shiny... And the emperor, if I can excuse my excuse my French, off come <laughs> blind me. I'm not on the show recently. We apologise for Aaron's uh, lapse into crude and foul language. Yes, there. as as as, uh, as sort of talking about Pliny the Elder, um, and he hasn't beheaded, and obviously the process it reemerges, uh, and we have aluminium, but it's incredibly precious because the current process uh, by which we create it from bauxite, I think it's called the Hall Harold process. Uh, doesn't really exist until the mid 19th century. So there's a mm-hmm. there's an anecdote of Napoleon III at a banquet giving all of the guests gold, uh, gold uh, dishes and cutlery, and he gives the King of Siam aluminium because it's more valuable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. so the point is, abundance can be in reach, but again, it's about it's about information. And this is what you know, people at like Paul Mason go overboard with this stuff, right? But information can transform production and it can make what is scarce yeah. hyper-abundant. Yeah, I mean, so for me, the, the, this, this kind of gets to the heart of some of my problems with this stuff, which is that, like, one, there is a kind of temporal question here, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, what comes first and, and uh, the, the space and time in which there is to develop these things because you you know you talk about things like, like saying oh that's capitalism that's in the way of that happening like yeah i agree but that's actually very hard yeah. <laughs> to overcome yeah, yeah. um and so so and i don't know that that kind of the that talking about technology does it and then there is a basic kind of political ethical question as well which is that you know the, the advantages that these technologies can provide will be unevenly distributed on a planet whose rivers run with poisons used in their production. Yeah. <clears throat> and it seems to me that those problems are the ones that we have to sort before landing on a kind of a bit of space rock. Um, you know, they're, they're probably, I mean, my, my claim would be they're mutually constitutive. And can I say in my defence, literally the first chapter of the book is about six crises. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, saying that this technology underpins all of them, ageing, resource depletion, uh, um, you know, automation in regards to technological unemployment, climate change. So I'm not denying any of that. But what I'm saying is there isn't just the solution to each of these, or at least the ability to significantly mitigate them with these technologies. But in certain aspects, actually, we can have forms of abundance which we don't even presently have. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, the thing that holds it back is, isn't just the politics, you know, capitalism. I mean, we could talk about, well, what is capitalism? Uh, it's a range of things which we, we can c- categorise as capitalist social relations. Um, but yes, I just want to say this is an opportunity as much as a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it, it just seems to me that it would be it, it would be strange to be excited about, you know, launching a rocket where the lander is built by a kind of cast of slaves in some, some godforsaken 
uh, factory basement somewhere. Or, we don't. Or, I mean, or, nobody's talking about slave labor. Or, or yeah, but except that sl- that slave I mean, labor is constitutive to the production process globally. We know this. I well, mean, no, we I mean, know rockets. This. Rockets now. Are, I mean, it's one of the very. Aerospace is one of the few commodities, actually, which does have any use for 3D printing. Uh, so the reason why you're seeing a massive price decline with regards to rockets, for instance, and you know we're talking about manufacturing having only a couple of million people by the mid-20th century, you know, you're saying that it, it, slaves, I mean, the point is, there won't be people manufacturing things. Yes, there may be slave labour. It will be in care, it will be in resource extraction, but in manufacturing, it will barely exist. So I don't think that necessarily pertains. Well, I mean, it pertains right now, is my, is well, my resource point. Extra- I don't think there's any, there's not many in text. You know, you can say that the Primark shoes you buy, I don't think that's a particularly unique issue in relation mm-hmm. to technologies no, I, I which agree, may mitigate these technologies climate change. Are, these technologies are, are, are used in this way. So let, that's I mean, a general critique so, yeah. of capitalism. I mean, I agree. <laughs> sure. Let's talk about the way that this... Uh, but what I'm saying is that that focusing, therefore, on the technological aspect rather than the political aspect seems to me to get it, you know, uh, cart, I was about to say something rude. <laughs> it's cart before horse, right? Like, that actually it, it, mis, it, it, it kind of misjudges where um, the, the kind of moving contradiction is, um, you know, where all of this actually really comes to Can the point. Can I reply to this? Yeah. Yeah, because... Uh- Again, we, we, James, I think, I suspect you may be partly Iranian because we're agreeing while arguing. I mean, I was, I was, I was, um, I chaired this event with Paul Mason, David Harvey and Alice Bell and James Medway recently. And David Harvey, he's very understated. So, you know, sometimes you don't quite get it. And then he says something, bloody hell, that's really reframed how I think about something. And his criticism of post-capitalism and Paul Mason, I thought they were doing this Iranian thing, but they're not. Right, they actually do really significantly disagree, and David Harvey's claim is that capitalism, and let's let's briefly define this: capitalism is an institutional constellation. Uh, it's a set of social relations, relation to nature, technology, daily life. It's composed in a bunch of fields, which com- you know that that comprises history fundamentally. Okay, the flow of history, and David Harvey was saying that actually capitalism merges in some of these fields. Elizabethan, rural proletariat, formation of wage labour, the nation state, forms of general taxation, uh, social relations, relations to nature, you know, Descartes kicking in a, a dog saying it's a machine. Okay, so all of a sudden you can commod- commodify animals, animism disappears, you know, uh, sort of pre-industrial spiritualism disappears, witchcraft and so on. And you move to a new form of social relations, a new kind of society. And then for David Harvey, the icing on the cake is a technology. It's the steam engine. Mm-hmm. And David Harvey's critique of Paul Mason with the post-capitalism stuff is that Paul is saying that it's the technology that's driving it and not the other stuff. And I would say that it, it, can, be, it can be any of them. You know, if we look at the Neolithic revolution, that, that to me seems like it was technology driving the social relations. You don't get the cities, you don't get culture, you don't get writing without the surplus created by domesticating animals and crops. So their technological innovation seems to me to have created new forms of social relation, new institutional structures. I don't think there's necessarily a concrete... Mm-hmm. That's not to say I agree with Paul, by the way. I think David's interpretation in, in this is correct. But I don't think that necessarily means that technology always and only uh, follows social mm-hmm. relations. <clears throat> okay. Let's trace some of this through through a story, a story about the car industry. Yeah. Um, and then we'll move on to talk about communism. Um, <laughs> um, so in, and it's a story about the way in which like the conjunction of these technologies um, with an increasingly globalized market, um, you know, 
actually just intensifies one of these capitalist dynamics. Um, so that capitalist dynamic of drawing people into labour, uh, you know, wage labour, and then throwing them off um, as, as, you know, as they are, become surplus to requirements and the way that the, the line develops. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you have people sort of, you know, encompassed by the supply chains, as, you know, production systems, so on and so on and so on. Um, you know, so labour is available to capital on a planetary scale. Um, and then you also have the drive to these kind of, uh, this automation, algorithmic software, et cetera, that makes such labor redundant. So it seems to me that the, that what the great threat here is that is, is the desire to have the working class work itself out of a job, but in a bad way. Mm, mm. <laughs> so, so, you know, these, these are people who, who, you know, and, and, you know, this kind of endless kind of, uh, extractive, uh, you know, physically extractive labour. And one of the features of, of the, the crunch points or the, the sharp points of this process are the kind of reassertion, often by kind of terrible acts of self-immolation or suicide, of bodily autonomy. And I think that's actually quite instructive. Um, but to talk specifically about cars and actually specifically about the way in which this spreads around the world. So in Detroit, you know, Toyotism arrives and actually kind of uh, screws the, the the auto workers union by threatening both automation and the possibility of of uh, moving elsewhere of globalization. So the 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 auto workers union there um, basically capitulates to to and I'm drawing here from uh, Beverly Silver uh, who who has wrote an amazing book about this stuff. Um, so she says that, that you have about one and a half million in the union by 1979 and it kind of you know has collapsed to about 700,000 by 2001 that's still quite large for an American union um you know but the point is that that you know this is an industry that still makes as much as it did it's just moved elsewhere so it makes is an industry that that has a high degree of automation um has high uh, ecological cost um so this is not immaterial or weightless it has you know metal plastic fossil fuels and so on um, and it's about five percent of global manufacturing. So this moves elsewhere, and you have struggles in, in say, um, you know, at the the Toyota plant outside Delhi, which I think is a, one one of those really Google interesting. Google, no? Uh, sorry, is it Google going outside Delhi? Anyway, uh, it's, yes. no, it's uh, it's the it's 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 not it's, it's something I can't remember what it's called. Yep. Um, it, it, uh, so you have this kind of flow regime. Um, and this sort of high tech assembly while also kind of slum production. So, so you know, uh, the suppliers are, are making parts using out of date machinery. Um, and then so reconciling the kind of technical productivity of, of the of the plant um, with the kind of dexterous hands of child labor. Um, and it is going on. You're right, actually. Yeah. Um, in 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 you know there militants there man. yeah 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 well in 2012 Tough this people. explodes into a kind of struggle mm. um, but but you know it's it, you know it, it, and these struggles kind of explode worldwide as mm. this kind of process happens and actually you know this, what silver does is trace this stuff in, in car workers from the 30s and 40s in Europe through 60s all the way across the world uh, including in Italy which is of course one yeah of the famous there's a great anecdote which sums all of this up. Uh, and it involves Henry Ford III, the grandson of Henry Ford. And he it's the early 1950s. And he's uh, taking, I think his name was Walter Reuter, who was the, you know, one of the lead organisers in the UAW, um, an automotive workers union in the US. And he's taking him around one of the new factories. And he points to all these new robots. And bear in mind, you know, I think there's only about a thousand industrial robots in the world 
by the end of the 1960s. They, they basically only exist in a few Western European countries and the US in the automotive uh, industry. And uh, Henry Ford III points these machines and he says, Walter, how are you going to get these machines to pay union dues? At which point Walter Reuter says, Henry, how are you going to get them to buy your cars? <laughs> which is a, is a superb... Yeah. It's a superb question which still hasn't been answered. Yeah. And let's go back to what you were saying about Charlie Chaplin and all these people talking about technology. For us, because humans live for 80 years, I think, what, life expectancy now is about 81 in Britain, right? We think these questions have been asked for a long time. But actually, if we think of ourselves as a species half a million years old, we've had agriculture for 12,000 years, these have only been live really for about 200 years. Um, and in terms of the capitalist mode of production, one presumes they'll have a conclusion in the next 100, 200 years, right? Just because of the crises we've outlined. Uh, and that's precisely right. When you look at uh, Toyotism ex expunging people from um, the labour process, it's fundamentally different to Fordism, not just in terms of the valorization of capital, but also in the consumption of capital. Mm. So Ford, i.e. Henry Ford III's grandfather, uh, was the first to uh, implement a $5 day wage in the US, often seen more as a sort of PR stunt than anything else, but it worked. Uh, he also was the first uh, major sort of figure in American industry to back a five-day week. So Toyotaism looks very different to Fordism in a couple of ways, but it, you know, at the consumption end, as much as the production end, it betokens what is a, is a crisis of capitalism born from its own incredible uh, tendency to productivity. Yeah, I mean, the, the the other part of this story is, say, you know, we get these kind of sequential technological and spatial fixes. So technological fixes um, which allow you to threaten a, a unionised worker or a spatial fix. You, know, you, you relocate somewhere else, away from union mm -hmm. militancy, usually. Um, and it's a successive, that successive relocation, which is the story of kind of capital's response to labour there, um, but what's interesting is that as the technology that is kind of, you know, uh, or as time goes on, that the time needed to, to undertake that, that relocation, i.e. the techno-spatial fix, decreases. Mm. So there's, there's less and less strength. And eventually you find, um, you know, it comes full circle and it starts to move back to Detroit, except this time um, they're very highly advanced technological factories. And it means that the workers that are taken on, again... Um, are you know are relatively well paid, but that's because they only need a tenth of the workers that they used to have. It's also you know some legacy stuff there. So I mean th that is for me the the kind of the, the big story about the kind of the, the question of automation, the question of capital labour relations in these industries. Um, Can I say one more thing? Yeah, go on. Um, if you look at, I think Philips have a factor, factory in the in the Dutch countryside uh, in Drachten. And the output per worker in their Drachten factory is 10 times that of their factory. I think it's either in uh, uh, Guangzhou or in Shenzhen. Okay. 10 times because of very high levels of automation. And these robotic arms in Drachten are so quick, right? They have to be behind glass windows. So workers can't even physically touch them because they may get injured. Uh, so as you say, that's the reason why we're now seeing reshoring. So production coming back to uh, the global north. A great example recently, Donald Trump was heralding it saying, big company, Foxconn, want to come back to the US and they've gone to Wisconsin. Uh, 
Well, yeah, because it's close to the domestic market and it has very little labour involved. And actually, US labour relations aren't very good in Wisconsin, as we as we know, Scott Walker, yeah. etc. Um, so, yeah, the reshoring thing is happening. But actually, fundamentally, uh, this is a big issue, most of all for the global south. Not for China. China will be fine. Okay, China's built like 15,000 miles of high-speed train network since 2008. China's going to be okay. If you're Nigeria, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Tanzania, Uganda, all these countries with massively growing populations between now and 2050, climate change, the cr- declining crop yields, what this does is it changes the developmental trajectory. So even if capitalism's fine, even if we're wrong about everything, Okay, let's be pessimistic for a second. And actually, it, 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 yeah, <laughs> no, no, but you know, the, the growth comes back. There are new commodities. We go into space, new markets, yada yada yada. What these levels of automation mean is that there's a fundamental change in the developmental trajectory. So whereas you're talking about the spatial fix, relocation to China. Uh, to other countries in the 1970s, that isn't repeated with these other countries just because the the labour component of production is so small. Or if it does happen, it doesn't create anywhere near as many jobs as it did in China. Mm. Now, Nigeria is going to have 400 million people by 2050. That's a problem for Nigeria. Uganda, Tanzania, these are going to have, you know, I think the three biggest cities in the world uh, at some point in this century are going to be probably Lagos, Dar es Salaam, uh, another African city. And this, for me, is the crucible of a crisis in capitalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want to talk about you know communism. I want to talk about um, emancipatory futures. I guess one of the the things that worries me about kind of the techno utopians um, is 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 that and makes me very suspicious that, that it says essentially we can have all the things that we enjoy now, except without the bad things. So without environmental damage, without hyper-consumption, hyper-exploitation, extreme alienation that accompanies them. And my reasons for suspicion are basically, you know, one, this has never been possible anyway. It's never happened um, that, that we've been able to have things that, you know, a small fraction or the, the, the kind of top of the world enjoys uh, go to all without uh, you know, without relations of domination. It just has never happened. Mm. So, well, know, for an anarchist, that's a surprisingly strange admission, James. Not an anarchist. <laughs> um, uh, to aren't our, you know, the, 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 my second problem here is, um, you know, aren't our feelings of enjoyment to some extent conditioned yeah. by? You know, capitalist logic, which is the logic of scarcity, exclusivity, competitive degradation, nihilism, and so on. But more importantly, and I think more more fundamentally, I think not sorry, more fundamentally, um, doesn't a future isn't a future that is in any way sustainable? Uh, doesn't that require us to transform quite profoundly our relationship to natural resources, mm. um, but also the circulation of consumer commodities on which a lot of contemporary enjoyment. Mm. Is 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 currently predicated. It's just unimaginable in the long term. Well, we don't know. I mean, uh, that's for the future to decide. I know. But hold on, you talk about the future all the time, and now you say, "Oh well, we don't know." No, no, no but I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, my response. To be a, a, a quite a speculative one because it's only one generation. Young Americans, millennials, uh, say that they would rather lose access to a car than to an iPhone or a phone or a smartphone, social networks. They'd rather be, for them, the social good of being connected. Now, that may be as an issue of brain chemistry and how screwed up we are as a result of Facebook and Twitter and Google. Maybe, maybe not. Um, that, to them, is more important than an automobile. 
okay? Which in terms of CO2 emissions, there's lots of bad stuff on an iPhone, but in terms of CO2 emissions, in terms of wage labour, in terms of a bunch of things, it's far, far more consumptive. Now, as communists, what we will need to do is, yes, we will need to and I agree with you, we are forged under conditions of capitalist social relations, scarcity, et cetera, et cetera. So it won't just happen. We are capitalist subjects. But it would have to be a trans, you know, transitional thing. It would ha- have to occur effectively through social democratic state apparatuses. Sorry, guys. Okay. Uh, but it probably would. Uh, and I, I'm actually very ambivalent about the UBI. But one thing it does have to commend it is it would help us experiment in new forms of togetherness, production, sociality, outside of this logic and emotionally and as subjects transition to this new mode of production. But what I think that betokens, and it's one of the optimistic uh, sort of uh, vignettes of modernity, is that people value social connection probably more than anything else, okay? Probably more than, you know, having a car. Uh, And I think if we return actually just to the quite anodyne social democratic politics of the mid-20th century, which I think are universalizable, actually, the right to housing, healthcare, education, uh, transport, withdrawn from commodity circulation, which would probably require, yes. Mm, yeah, I mean, that's but, quite different to, to the stuff you talk about in no, terms but, of kind uh, of going to asteroids and things. No, but for me, when I say fully automated luxury communism, the vision is William Morris, News from Nowhere. It's playing in nature. It's uh, actually a very... Um, almost sort of antique idea of, of flourishing and togetherness. The point is, what makes that abundance possible? What would ward off cancer? Well, it probably is gene editing. Mm-hmm. What would allow us to not require the hydrocarbons? Well, it's probably going to be PV cells. Because we live under capitalism, the attention is focused on these. Now, these are merely a means to an end. What is the end? Mark says it. It's the flourishing of human species being, which is nothing to do with robots and transistors and all this stuff. Um, and to quickly go back to the idea of you know gene editing uh, and what alternative futures might look like recently there's a great story early 2017 there's a technology called CRISPR-Cas9 briefly it's reduced the cost of genetic engineering by about 99.8% okay because of trial times and so on that's not feeding through to any solutions but in terms of you know you know uh, the initial trials it's now unfolding Anyway, cost of entry into a CRISPR-Cas9 lab are tens of thousands of dollars, right, rather than tens of millions. In uh, early 2017, an American guy, a dog breeder, he sends a letter to a US department, I can't remember what it is. He says, I'm currently working on eliminating this gene in Dalmatians, which causes them to all have gout. I'm going to get rid of it. And the department write back going, this will be illegal. And then very shortly afterwards, a new, you know, there's a new sort of communique release, there's legislation. And what I can foresee under scarcity, and what they say is, by the way, edited genes will be um, regarded as a patent, a technology. So let's say we can edit genes in the future to eliminate cancer or Alzheimer's or heart disease or stroke. That will be a form of abundance with regards to health. It will be very low cost, far cheaper than pharmaceuticals are at present. So capitalist uh, production then has to enforce scarcity through the market. Mm. How does it do that? It makes us a commodity. It makes it subject to intellectual property. And then the argument, as we already see, look, Napster did this in the early 2000s. Everybody could have every tune and every film ever, every book for free. We don't because then they say, where would the incentive be to create even more social goods? So we have to decide as a society where that ends. But anyway, to return to your point, the, the 
the idea of fully automated luxury communism is that the automation of technologies are subordinated to a humanism, a humanistic project. Uh, and that can be lost, of course, because I'm trying to market the book and sell it to people like Elon Musk. They're not going to read a book about humanism. They're yeah. going to read one about technology. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I was, I was thinking ahead of the show and I, I just of why I hate Yuval Noah Harari. Mm-hmm. Um, they all read him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this, this, this guy um, whose um, latest book is Homo Deus. Yeah. So, and, you know, his sense is like, you know that, that line about Napoleon being the world spirit on horseback, and now he believes the world spirit rides on a microchip? Like, you know, the fantasy of history in the books is absurd. Um, but, but you know, it's not just the propositional context. Some of what he says is quite interesting, unoriginal, but interesting. Um, some is just markedly untrue or, or amateurish. So he claims that there's just a progressive reduction in violence, for instance, which is not only a debatable claim, but like a, one that can you can get in at its foundations. Um, he needs to read some Adorno. <laughs> also, the 20th century was the most violent Yeah, ever, yeah, right? yeah, I absolutely. Mean, as social scientists... Barbed wire and mushroom yeah. clouds. If you're looking at the long trend here, like as social scientists, you don't look at the outlier yeah. data yeah. Of the last yeah, yeah. 20, 30 years. So, but then it's also like, some are disturbing, you know, the kind of human beings are kind of algorithms now to be surpassed by better algorithms. Right. Um, but it's also like that kind of accretive, wiggish air to it. And I, I start to ask, you know, what is the agent of history here? What is the thing that makes the political change? You know, who built the iPhone? And I don't mean the person who came up with the, the, the code. I mean the person, you know, who sat there on the assembly line pushing the gorilla glass into the plastic. You know, it's that Brechtian question, who hauled up the rocks? And so it well, seems who, to who me... Who funded all the R&D? It was the yeah, US taxpayer, yeah, right? I, I, In these her- terrible jobs. It was farmers, it was... Yeah. And one of the things, I guess, that scares me about the, the kind of, you know, and I'm not accusing you of being a part of it, but the, that kind of, this kind of industry of futurism, why it's so popular now, is that kind of, you know, that, that critical or kind of Frankfurt School idea that these things also have, you know, the, these cultural products have ideological functions that reconcile you to a certain kind of capitalist modernity uh, in which, you know, the kind of plate glass future, uh, you know, aseptic and individualised is the inevitable one. Uh, and I think, I think that's something to really, really uh, grasp onto. And there needs to be a really strong critique of futurism that, that doesn't seem I mean, to emerge is, on the techno-utopian. What is, yeah. I mean, futurism, I mean, you could call Marx a futurist. You know, I mean specifically here the kind of because there is says sh- that capitalism, capitalism as it currently exists, is the uh, you know existing condition of humankind, and the future will be brought in by algorithms, and no fundamental social or economic future. change is going to that's take place. That's a genre. People, that's yeah. a genre of futurism. But you could, I would say that Marx was a futurist. I mean, I mean it's the dominant one, right now. No, but I mean, you know, the, if you look at the uh, political utopias, uh, this is your uh, this is your neck of the woods, James. Yeah, you know better than anyone, probably, that um, at some point in the mid-19th century, they become oriented to the future. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, when he writes uh, The Social Contract, he's looking at the Sparta of Lycurgus. He's looking at classical antiquity. And something changes between Rousseau, who inspires the French Revolution, the American Revolution, Haitian Revolution, and then Marx, and Saint-Simon, and Comte, these people that start sociology, who start political economy, or proper political economy, okay? Not Ricardo. They're looking forward and not back. So the futurism claim, I'm not sure. But I am saying that we make history but not under conditions of our own making, as Marx does. And yes, we make the future if not under conditions of our own making. And return to your point about why these people want to eliminate humans from history as an agent, I think that's why they're obsessed with the singularity. Because then finally, 
human agency will be obliterated from the face of the earth. Class antagonism will no longer need to be a question, which is why I think they talk about it in the way they do. Interesting. Okay, I mean, a final question for you. If you look at struggles over technology, I mean here not not you know not just workers' struggles, but the way in which people choose to engage in technology, the way in which um, you know people are even resisting uh, the the uh, 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 domination of technology in their everyday life. Um, what? gives you what where do you see a kind of communist swerve where do you see something latent that is really inspiring and hopeful where does that what does that look like where is it coming from so i think under a social democratic government if we would have one we would have to start something called the office for the non-market economy <laughs> and it would help grow these forms of production and actually i see them everywhere i see it with navarra media you know, some people are paid, nobody's paid the market rate, some people are unpaid. Um, it's an interesting production model. Uh, I see it with Wikipedia, uh, a pedestrian hackneyed example. But, you know, we I use that site 20, 30, 40 times a day. I have for the last 10, 12 years, and it's free. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to understand the possibilities of commons-based production. And fundamentally, it needs to be resourced by the state and by the powerful. If it's not, it will remain at the margins. If it is, I think it could increasingly become uh, at the centre of, of there social we are. life. Well, uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> bye bye. This has been Navarra FM. This show is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navarramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.